1: Sarah, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I actually came across your work by way of Medium, where you have been posting stuff that just makes me laugh every single day. And I was kind of like, you know, uh, naturally, my instinct was to chase it down the rabbit hole and see where it all came from. And I was really blown away by all of your work. So uh, it's really great to have you here. And uh, on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has led to all this amazing work that you're doing?
5: I'm sure. I um, I've been uh, come from an immigrant family. Um, We're I'm Jamaican, and my whole family's Jamaican. I was born in in Jamaica and came here when I was three. And I think, like a lot of immigrant families, uh, uh, I my family really wanted me to do something that was very you know, from society's perspective, very productive. I think. Um, Aziz Ansari's new show is really kind of uh showing the side of immigrant families as well. They they sacrifice a lot to bring us here, but then we kind of do things that they maybe not don't want us to do. Uh-huh. Um I uh I really got into theater and um acting. I actually wanted to be a singer when I was little, but then I have a really terrible singing voice even though I love singing. Um and so then I decided to be an actor and uh, My parents definitely steered me away from that because, you know, they didn't want me to end up, you know, on the street with no money, no house, you know, no food, all that stuff. Um, So I ended up (laughs) as an economics major. They really wanted me to do business, but then I went to the business school and I just I I, my schmoozing skills are just not up to par with business people. So um, I ended up doing economics, which is a little bit more theoretical. Um, But even that was just really, really boring for me. But um, my last uh, semester, I took a multimedia design course, which is what they called it back then, 2000 or whatever. Um, And I just fell in love with being on the computer and being in Photoshop and making things. And it was just like really, really exciting to me. Um, And so it was something that I felt like, you know, was creative enough, but also I could actually make money doing. And so after after college, I went to Georgia Tech in their graduate program for digital design and kind of pursued a, a career in um, interactive design and, and basically just doing anything in Photoshop on the computer, Flash, back when Flash was all the rage. And, uh, you know, I did that for a while and was very successful at it, but never lost that desire to act and to do something that was just kind of really different, Um so i uh I ended up like you know quitting my job around age thirty and decided to go back to acting. And you know, the interactive design stuff actually helped me a lot because I was able to do that freelance while I was acting, which was very helpful because you don't make any money acting. <laughs> um, and uh, i um I was not very good at acting. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh the thing about acting is you know, the best actors are very unpredictable and very, they do things that you don't expect them to do. They're very surprising when they're um, performing. And my, you know, upbringing and my background always made me want to be perfect and and be like very, um, very predictable actually. Um, Which is, so I had this kind of like, struggle because it was very hard for me to just be sort of wild and unhinged because of my sort of corporate background has kind of made me be a lot more you know predictable and not as uh not as as interesting artistically um so I was frustrated with that and I decided to you know do the next logical thing which was stand-up comedy (laughs) which um was really just my way of trying to find my voice because I thought you know if I could get an on a stage and get in front of a bunch of people, and in my own words, really be myself. Then maybe that would help my acting. But then when I did that, I found that I really liked it. I really liked um, directing myself. I really liked writing for myself because um, I did tend to be sort of a diva on set, where I you know wanted to talk about the lighting and the costumes and all that stuff. And as an actor, you're really the lowest on the totem pole on set because you know you're told what to do, what to say, where to be, where to look, you know, all of that stuff. And you have to kind of be creative with like the very specific constraints you're given. Whereas stand-up comedy, you're really inventing yourself. And so I really, I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, And then I I took the leap and moved to New York to kind of pursue that and pursue, continue to pursue acting as well. Um, But then (laughs) I ran out of money. Um, you know as most as a lot of actors do, and New York is a very expensive place to live. And um, I think I also in New York, you you just see that a lot of people are willing to sacrifice so much for stand-up comedy or for acting or for, for another kind of art, and there's so many people doing it. And you really have to question like, am I really willing to give up all the comforts of you know, normal life uh, you know to, to really do this? And I think that I really wasn't. Um, and so, uh, that's when a friend of mine from Georgia tech, uh, referred me for a, a job at Google. And so that's when I started working at Google was Google New York and I worked on Google docs and I sort of, um, really enjoyed it because it was, uh, it, it's a, it, you know, Google New York is a lot smaller than, uh, the main campus and it's very, um, it feels a lot like a startup, even though they are Google and they have lots of money. Um, so I, I felt really comfortable there, and it wasn't as as terrible of a transition as I thought it was going to be um, going from the acting world back to you know sort of the tech world and the corporate world. Um, and uh, I think about like three years after I started working at Google, I um, you know I, I continued to do stand-up just kind of on the side, and I started writing as well. And, uh, this article that I wrote, um, 10 tricks to appear smart in meetings was something that I had started seven years prior to that, you know, just jotting down these things that I saw people doing meetings. And at Google, I was in meetings so much that I thought, you know what, I should finish this and I should actually post it. And, um, so I actually did. And it really took off just kind of overnight. Um, I always thought, you know, maybe, you know, when you when you actually write something or put something online, you have to put a lot of emphasis into like promoting it. And, you know, I think that that's important. But for this, I really didn't have to do anything. It took off on its own completely. Um, it got, you know, 100,000 views in the first day. And it, it really, you know, I guess resonated with people. And that kind of gave me this insight into this, you know, whole different world of writing and sort of um being creative that way online. Um, and so that, um, kind of led me into starting my blog, the Cooper review. And then eventually I was, um, getting contacted from publishers and and agents about writing a book. Um, and that's when I, again, decided to quit my job and kind of pursue the creative thing again. And that was about a year ago. So, um, now I'm I'm working on uh, my first book and that's kind of my full time job now and so that kind of brings us up to today.
1: Awesome. So lots of stuff that I I want to ask you about. Uh, you know I, I I can totally relate to growing up in the immigrant family and yeah. uh, having that whole idea of doing something that society approves of and that is normal and that you know won't lead to you know you starving on the streets. Um, so the question I have around that is how you sort of resolve that tension of this burning desire to do something creative while at the same time, you know, realizing you've got this family that has all these pressures and expectations that they're laying on you, because I I don't think you're alone in that. I think that's pretty much common to all immigrants. And it's funny you mentioned master of none, because I look at that show and I think, yeah, those are all moments that I would have with my parents.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And, and you know, we're Jamaican and it's, it's almost the same thing. And I don't know what it is about this. You know, I think this American dream, um, you know, has spread around the world and it, it it got to my parents and, you know, they, that's, you know, when they brought us here and they sacrificed so much, just like his parents to bring us here, I think they just had an idea in their head of what success looks like and, you know, wanted to make sure their children followed that path. And it's, it's crazy how consistent it is across so many different cultures that come to America. Um, and, uh, it's, it's not easy. And I think that it was, uh, it was tough for me because I don't think my parents really accepted this desire for me to do something different until they started to see that I had some success in it. Um, you know, it was always that's great, but you know, you should really go back to doing something else. Um, and it was, you know, it was difficult because my family is really funny. They're all hysterically funny. And so Um, you know, I I thought that they would sort of appreciate, you know, this side of me and I think they do, but they just don't see it as a career. They don't see it as a path for themselves or themselves or me. And, um, you know, I guess that's the beautiful thing about it is that, you know, they have sacrificed so much because, and now that we're, we're doing things that they could, they could never see themselves doing. We're taking chances that are even beyond the chances that they took in a way, Um, so I think it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a beautiful thing because I think, you know, my mom is very creative and she was in human resources, but she's very into interior design and things like that. And, but, you know, she would never pursue anything like that. You know, she did the thing that, you know, made money for her, for her family, which is, you know, great, but that has given me the opportunity to kind of break free and do something that's completely different and and completely my own. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it, was, it was definitely tough, but I think, you know, after a while, after, you know, sticking with it enough and having some success and kind of proving myself, I think that they finally came around.
1: You know, it's funny. There's uh, a line. I, I just got a book deal with a publisher as well, and I just submitted the manuscript. And I, I actually wrote a line in there saying, you know, now that I got a book deal, I hope my parents won't think I've just been screwing around on the Internet for the last six years. <laughs>
5: It's so true. It's like fine if if someone else validates you, then finally your parents are like, oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I I want to ask you about this because um I, I have really wondered about certain characteristics, uh especially the tendency to, you know, go against the grain and to, to rebel against the status quo. Do you think that these kinds of things are inherently built into certain people like that ability to kind of say, you know, I love you guys, you're my parents. And you know, I'm glad you sacrificed, but I'm going to go against everything uh, for my own burning creative desire. Like, do you think that that ability is something that is inherently part of some people's psyche? Or do you think it's something that can like, be learned or cultivated?
5: That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, I want to say that, okay, I think I have an analogy for this—it's um, kind of like if you if you go into a, a store that's very expensive, and um, you know the person asks you if if you you know want to uh, buy anything or if they can help you. If you have money, if you have some money in your bank account somewhere, then there's a window, there's a little bit of a door opening there where like they could help you and you could probably buy something. But if you literally have zero money, <laughs> I'm, t- I swear, I'm going to bring this back. If you have no money, like there's nothing that they can do or say that's going to get you to buy anything. And I think that if you have that little seed of something of, of, of curiosity, of self-awareness, I think that that can be, um, grown into something that really does go against the grain. Um, but i think that you do have to be born with that 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 little seed of something because i i i have people i have friends and you know people in my life that are just wonderful people but they would never ever take that chance and i just feel like for whatever reason you know that seed was never nurtured or whatever and they they just you know aren't self-aware enough to realize that maybe everything that they're doing is just kind of part of this big machine and it isn't really them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So maybe everyone's born with the seed and then some people have the seed nurtured and some people don't. And maybe that's what it is.
1: Okay. So I want to ask about your childhood a little bit. Uh, Growing up, when you look back at your life, uh, you know, early childhood, you know, mentors, influences, experiences, are there any moments in your life that really stand out as moments that kind of set you down this path of doing all these creative things?
5: Um, I think that there was... Uh, I, I'm the baby of the family and um, both of my older sisters uh, have um, challenges. My my older sister is... Uh, uh, she's, she's sort of mentally delayed and then my older, older sister, she was born with um, a syndrome which... Um, she was born like without a chin and without ears and just had a lot of difficulty growing up. I had to have a lot of surgeries. Um, and so I was the baby of, you know, this family that, you know, had to deal with a lot of things. And so for better or worse, that put me in a situation where I had to make sure everyone was okay. And I was sort of the person that, um, you know, wanted to make people laugh or make people feel good if, if things weren't going well. And I think that role is something that I continued to play in school and in work. Uh, and I can't say that there's like a specific moment, but I just know that that was sort of my role in my family of, you know, being not necessarily the clown, but sometimes the clown, but more or less the, uh, the finder of common ground, you know, if there were disagreements or arguments or people were upset, you know, just, you know, kind of, uh, standing up for my sisters if I needed to. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what led me to want to, um, be a person that makes people enjoy themselves or feel good. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's a good quality and a bad quality. I think that, the good side of it is that I am very, very much uh, aware of how people are feeling. Um, and it does affect me. It does make me think, okay, this person isn't feeling good. What can I say to make them understand that I know where they're coming from or make them feel better? But then on the bad side of it, it's like it, it's hard for me to just be myself sometimes and not worry about what how people are responding to me, which on stage is a kind of a terrible quality because – the best comedians get up there and they are making themselves laugh. They really, you know, they care about the audience and they can read the audience, but at the same time audiences love watching people that, you know, they don't care. They don't really care, you know, um, what the audience is thinking and they're just sort of, you know, doing their own thing and enjoying themselves and making themselves laugh. So I think that that's kind of a balance that I've had to strike. Hmm.
1: So you (sighs) mentioned this moment, uh, where you fell in love with multimedia and design And, you know, I've asked people this same question in various forms, and I always am intrigued by the answers. You think that you only recognize that as a really important moment in your life looking back, or did you realize what was happening when it was happening?
5: Um, I think I realized what what was happening when it was happening because I was so um, lost with my economics degree. It was just you know, I think my options were to go get a PhD in economics or go work at a think tank. And I just didn't, you know, didn't see any fun in that at all. And so, uh, yeah, I did. I knew, you know, pretty quickly that um, being, you know, on, on a computer and designing things was something that was really exciting to me. And it, it, changed, it changed the course of, of my future immediately. Um, because immediately after that, I was like, okay, looking at graphic design, you know, schools and places to work where I could do graphic design and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I knew, I think I knew pretty much at the time. Mm.
1: So those kinds of moments, um, I'm very certain that I missed almost all of them early on. And much like yourself, I was an economics major at Berkeley and my first instinct was to start making things the minute somebody gave me a new piece of technology, but mm-hmm. I could never figure out that that was the path to actually doing work that I could get paid for. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering later on in life how people can bring about these kinds of moments and alter the trajectories of their futures.
5: Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it's about um, exploring and um, not giving up when things are turning out Uh, not the way that you want them to turn out. Um, I think there's a great quote from Ira Glass, which is about how, you know, you have a lot of people have this admiration for art inside of them. And, you know, when they try to do something, it's just not as good as what they admire and and the things that they look up to. And so they give up. And I think it's, it's really hard to just power through that and get through, get, get over that hump of not liking what you're making and start, Getting to the point where you're making things that you actually like and you actually enjoy, um, and so it, it just takes a lot of experimentation. I, I, uh, a year before I wrote, you know, the article, and I was experimenting with, you know, satire, dating satire, and just playing around with that, and that didn't really go anywhere. But if I hadn't tried that first, I wouldn't have kind of had the idea to do something else. So I think it's really just about playing around and giving yourself the, the time and space and in a in a safe way to 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 fail. And to like get
2: better,
1: Hmm. you know, it's interesting because I was I was writing a post for my personal blog this morning about you know why you should just keep making your art until it doesn't suck. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is I think somewhere in the process of growing up, we start to learn how to ask that question: Does this suck? And of course, the answer is inevitably yes. The problem is that yes becomes a very permanent answer. So we say yes, and we make a permanent decision based on a one-time experience.
5: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very true. I think that's what happened with me and, uh, and singing. Cause I just love singing. And then I had a, my fourth grade, uh, music teacher told me that I had a terrible voice <laughs> when, I was, when I was only in fourth grade. And so from that moment on, you know, I know that if I, you know, I've taken sing- singing lessons and I continue to practice, but I know that mentally, like I just can't get over that, that person telling me that I had, have a terrible voice. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's really rough. <laughs>
1: So in these moments when you had, you know, work that didn't live up to your own expectations, were there times when you just wanted to quit or give up?
5: Um, yeah. I mean, even, um, even after having, you know, when you have some success and then afterwards, you know, you make something that isn't as successful, you just, you know, you think, well, that, that was, I'm, I'm a one hit wonder and I'm never going to make anything that's as successful again. Um, and it's, you know, the thing I think the thing about a lot of people and, and me included is that um, as frustrated as I get and as annoyed as I get or as much of a failure as I feel, um, I can't stop thinking of ideas and I can't stop thinking of things that I want to do and things that I think would be great. And so um, I can't help it. Like, I'm just going to keep I'm, I'm just going to keep making things even if, you know, even if something goes terrible. I think that you do it long enough, you realize, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really down about myself right now, really down about whatever I'm trying to do artistically. But I know that, you know, in two weeks or a month or something like that, I'm going to have another idea and I'm going to want to do it. So I know that I'm not going to quit. You know, there's just this, this thing inside you that you, you, you know, that you're going to want to keep trying no matter what.
4: Planning for your next trip?
1: Okay. So this actually brings up a question for me about validation. And I only know this because I've experienced some of what you're talking about. Like when, you know, you put put up something on Medium or someplace and it starts to go crazy viral, you get like this just instant surge of validation. And suddenly you're affirmed by the entire external world. You feel important. Uh, but like you said, it goes away. And I'm curious how you balance maintaining your sanity, you know, and not getting addicted to the validation, especially after experiencing it at the level that you have?
5: Um, it's really hard. It's always, for me, I still compare everything I do to that one thing. (laughs) 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 Which is, like, terrible, and I shouldn't do that. Um, but I really would like to, I, I, I can't lie, I would like to make something as great as that one day, you know, in the future. So, um, it's, uh, and the validation stuff is, is hard because humor is so subjective and some of the funniest things that I, that, that I've written that I think just make me laugh to this day still make me laugh the most are not successful at all. People don't get it, you know? And, and so that's, <laughs> that's kind of hard too, because then you're like, wait a second, like, is it I'm just not getting to the right audience or is my sense of humor just off in this one area or something like that? Um, And uh, I don't know. I I think that um, true, true artists, my guess is, I don't know, but like true, true artists that make things that are just really pure art, like mean whatever you want them to mean when you look at them or when you read them or experience them, um, you know, maybe they're just really good at at doing things that they don't really care what people think and they don't really care what people are getting out of them. And, you know, they're just making it. I feel like as a, with a design background, you know, from the background of, I have to make something and people have to understand it and people have to know what to do with it. And it has to be interpreted the right way. um, You know, I I kind of have to figure out uh, how to, I don't know, bridge, bridge that gap because, I want people to get it, but I want to be proud of it as well. So I don't just want to make things that just pander to everybody and just, I think people are just going to, it's just going to get clicks. It's just going to get eyeballs. It's just going to get shared, but I don't like it. Like, I don't want to be in that position where I'm making things that I don't actually like or that I don't actually enjoy. Um, but I do want to make things that I enjoy and that other people enjoy as well. And that I can, cause that's the best feeling in the world is when you make something and people get it and you get it and you can like, you know, have that communal experience of, yeah, we both get it. And we both think this is awesome. And we both understand what's being made fun of here and why it's funny. Um, so, but satire is interesting too, because, you know, you can get the people that take it seriously and they're funny too. and They're hilarious as well. Cause they just, they're kind of like the, the perfect button on all of satire is when somebody actually takes it seriously and they have a real response to it. Um, because that's just also very hilarious. Um, so, um, yeah, I I would say it's, it's, it's tough not wanting that validation. Um, and I don't think I've figured it out yet. I still very much want people to, um, love, love the things that I do. Um, but I want to love them as well.
1: I think that last piece is really one of the most important things. Um, I'm with you. I, I don't know that I've ever lost, you know, this sense for. Oh, I hope you know thousands of people listen to this and everybody absolutely loves it. But uh, for me, I think that the litmus test is always if I don't love it and I don't feel it, I don't think anybody else will. Like mm-hmm. that's been the filter through which I run every piece of work we ever produce.
5: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's a good that's a good litmus test. And then if you know if you make something uh, like I, I wrote an article called um, Eight Signs Your Heroin Addiction Might Be Ruining Your Career," <laughs> which yeah, I think that's hysterical. And it's just this very serious article about why you know your addiction to heroin <laughs> might be affecting your ability to get a promotion or get along with your coworkers or things like that. Just and I I just think it's the, one of the funniest things ever. But no one shared it. No one saw it. And, you know, it was you know. And so I mean, I guess. You know, you make enough stuff so that you have little gems like that that you really love and enjoy even though, even if no one else really gets it.
1: <laughs> uh, so, you know, earlier you mentioned that uh, stand-up comedy became a way of you finding your voice. And I really would love for you to talk about that in more detail and tell us, you know, how it revealed your voice and how it connected you to your voice and the things you learned from that that, uh, you know, have made its way into your work.
5: Um, yeah, Um I think that, um, one thing that I learned from watching, uh, other up comedians and just from being on stage myself is that, um, you know, people love when you make fun of yourself and, um, I love making fun of myself and my husband makes fun of me constantly and I love it. That's one of the things I just love about him. Um, and I, it's, uh, so, so really, um, honing that and like sort of combining it with, um, you know, the corporate world and how ridiculous that seems sometimes. I think that's, that's kind of, um, that's kind of where that all came from. I mean, when I first started doing a standup comedy, it was making fun of me and dating. I was single and I was hopelessly single girl and a lot of female comedians have that shtick. And so I look back on some of my earlier sets and I'm like, Oh my gosh, so hacky and predictable and stupid. But, you know, I kind of, um, I just I just really loved, you know, making fun of me just being like not really understanding, you know, dating and sort of making fun of myself in that world and and making fun of other people too. Um, but <laughs> the thing is about uh stand-up is you always start with making fun of yourself because then the audience is like, Oh, okay, this person doesn't take themselves too seriously and you know they can make fun of themselves, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay with whatever else they, they want to make fun of, whether they make fun of me or they make fun of someone else, it's okay, because they started out by putting themselves down first, um, which is kind of a weird psychological thing, but it's so true. Whenever I've started out a set, you know, making fun of other people first, it's, it's never gone as well as when I start out making fun of myself and my family and, you know, things that I failed at and things that didn't work out, and I love that stuff, so... Um, I think that that kind of has worked its way into my work where uh, I make fun of me wanting to <laughs> always do the right thing at work. And this, you know, tricks to appear smart in meetings that I was in meetings and I wanted to look smart and everybody wants to look smart. And when I say something that makes me look smart, I think that, you know. I am (laughs) just like one of the greatest employees ever. And I replay that moment in my head, you know, over and over again, because I said something that everybody really thought was, was a great thing to say. And so, um, the, the odd thing about my voice really though, is that, um, I'm sort of making fun of my need to be perfect and making fun of my need to, and this is all, it goes back to the whole being an immigrant as well, it's like, how do you fit in? Um, making fun of uh, sort of cataloging all the things that you people do to make it seem like they know what they're doing, even if they're kind of a fish out of water, and none of this is making any sense whatsoever. Um, and so I don't know if, I'm hoping that my voice evolves into something that's even more pure than that or more true or more like, you know, close to my heart. Um, but right now it's, it's really about, um, it's really about being fake and faking it. And that's kind of my voice has become like how to fake it. And I, I, I think it's, I think it's hysterical just because so many people, uh, have these, everyone's, everyone's a performer and, and, you know, the corporate world, everyone is sort of performing a little bit every day. And I just, I love, I love the idea of, of bringing that to light and thinking about what people are, you know, the, the masks that people are wearing in order to, to uh, get ahead at work. <laughs> mm.
1: So how do other people discover uh, a way of finding their own voice or connecting with their own voice?
5: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think... Uh, I think so many people are... Um, kind of uh, aware already of, of what their voice is because it's, it's with them probably all the time. It's in their head. It's very silent. It's in the back of their head or the back of their mind, or maybe it's something that they have shown to people that are very close to them. But for whatever reason, it's really hard to turn it into something that they want to share with a ton of people. Um, I have an old high school friend who writes me these really long, Facebook messages that are really great he you know he lives in Mexico and he has all these observations about Mexican life and you know he says write about this you know here's a bunch of things that you can write about and I'm like that's not my story that's your story like why don't you write about it um but he's scared to you know he just doesn't he does he doesn't feel like he can he feels sort of trapped and I can totally understand that because that's part of the reason that I, I felt like I needed to leave the corporate world is because I didn't feel like I could say whatever I wanted to say online when I was working for a giant corporation because, you know, you say the wrong thing and, you know, you, you know they, they find out where you work. And, you know, the whole like Internet mob thing scares the hell out of me, especially with satire when people might not even realize that you're making a joke. Um, so you can feel like really trapped in. Um, And so even like, even if you have your true voice in your head, you have other voices, you have your boss's voice, you have your mom's voice, you have your spouse's voice saying, oh, you can't say that. You can't think that, you know, like all this stuff. It's really hard to get rid of those voices. Um, Something that really works for me is just writing um, anything I want, um, you know, every day for, you know, as much time as I can. Um, with no filter and no judgment, you know, maybe not even reading it over. Um, and so, you know, that I think that is something that might help is just taking um, a moment and finding a space where you really can say exactly what you want with no judgment from anyone else about what it is that you're saying. Um, and not not to share it with anyone, but just to discover, you know, those pieces of truth that really resonate with you that maybe you think you can eventually turn into something else. And so I think that it's, it's mostly about, um, finding a place where you don't feel trapped and you don't feel like you can't say what you want to say. Um, so that you can really, you know, find, find that voice somehow.
1: That was poetic. Oh, thank you. Um interesting and i shared this on another episode of the show and i you know i've been thinking about this because my next book is is all about writing uh you know the whole idea of 1000 words a day and i you know the whole idea of finding your voice that i kept thinking about that and i was like that doesn't really make any sense because we never really lose it
5: yeah Mm -hmm.
1: you know and i said you know we don't have to find our voice we have to connect with it
5: Mm -hmm. and
1: creating in whatever way that might be is how you start to connect with it
5: what's your first book about
1: the first book is called Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than the Best. Um, and the idea behind that book is uh, it's not you know, a roadmap because I hate maps. It's really <laughs> a, it's a compass for how to make your work unmistakable. Make it so distinctive that it's immediately recognized as something you've done and that nobody uh, else could do but you.
5: Cool. I like that.
1: So. Um, well, let's talk about the time at Google. Uh, I'm always interested in hearing uh, about people's lessons learned and, uh, you know, some of the, the more insightful things that come from their time at these places. You know, I, I remember when we had Aluna here, it was mind blowing to, to learn all the things she shared about her time working at IDEO. So I can only imagine, uh, you know, what kinds of lessons you've brought into your work. And I, I'd love for you to share some of those with us.
5: I'm um, sure. Um, I think uh of all the places to, uh, to work. I think Google is, is one of the best places. Um, they have a great. Most of the people that I worked with were some of the funniest people I ever worked with. And, you know, one of them became my husband. So, and he's literally the funniest person I've ever met in my life. Um, and they are so good at making fun of themselves and so good at challenging each other and challenging each other's ideas. And, um, just amazing at finding humor in, in almost everything. And so, um, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time there. And, uh, I, I think that, um, I was a, uh, I started out as a designer and then my last few years, I was, um, managing, uh, a team of designers, um, who are working on Google Docs. And I learned a lot about myself. I think that I learned, um, you know, my, my need to find consensus again, like I need, I had that need with my family and, you know, I really had that need at work. Um, you know, it, it it kind of, uh, got in the way of me, you know, kind of stating, you know, my own opinion. It's, that's one of the things that's tough about like the corporate world is that, um, you know, if you walk into a meeting and you're able to kind of, reiterate what people are saying and then come up with a solution that makes everyone feel included. That is probably the best way to get ahead and to, you know, you know look like smart and to look like uh, a leader. Um, the best leaders at Google weren't necessarily the most opinionated. They weren't necessarily the most visionary. They were the ones who, just you wanted to you wanted to work with them you wanted to collaborate with them because they were going to make you feel included they were going to make your ideas um seem valid and uh and and you wanted to work with those people and so i really i i kind of emulated that in a lot of the, the leaders that i admired at google and uh i i think i sort of lost myself in that because it was all about you know Making the team happy, making sure the project was going to be successful, um, making you know making sure my boss was happy with the way things were going, um, and not as much about me and it's funny when I, when I left, my team made a video uh, for me of, you know, the things that they, you know, remember about me and the things that they will miss about me. And none of it had to do with design or like, you know, design inspiration or anything like that. All of it was, I made people laugh and the funny things I did and said and all of that stuff. And, that, that sort of validated for me that I did need to leave because it like, I love design and I, I love, you know, I love great, you know, interactive design as well. Um, but it wasn't, it, you know, I, I didn't have the passion for it the way that I have the passion for comedy and a passion for, for making people laugh. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if there's, there's really any, you know, big lessons from that, but, um, I would say, you know, Google was a you know a place where it was just it, it was really good to to be collaborative and to be able to make fun of yourself and be able to be honest about what was working and what wasn't working. Um, and I'm not sure I'm not sure every campus is like that, but that's definitely how the New York campus was.
1: All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. I want to actually start talking about uh, your work itself, like the stuff that I found you uh, for. And I want to talk about the creative process of how something like this comes to life, because every bit of it to me is brilliant. That's, you know, why I reached out to you because I was just so blown away by it. I mean, how do you take something from being, you know, an idea? I mean, how do you even come up with half these ideas and then bring them to life the way that you do?
5: Um,
1: Which I realize is a big question.
5: Yeah, it's a pretty big question. Um I think that you know my my process is very much based on observation. Um for me like my favorite comedian is Louis CK and he's often just telling us things that we've seen already and we've already seen ourselves and and saying things that we wish we could say but we can't. Um and so uh I um you know I I'm not trying to be funny. I'm really just trying to be honest. And that's, that's one of the things that I've, I've talked about before when I've, I've spoken at different places is, um, a lot of times when people are trying to be funny is, is when they're awkward. (laughs) They just, they just fall flat on their face when they're trying to be funny. But when you're really just trying to point out the, the, the real things that people do in, in these situations, people have that laughter of recognition. And that's, Almost always what I'm going for is that laughter of recognition where you can really relate and you want to talk about it and share it because you it reminds you of you or it reminds you of someone that you know. And so the test for me whenever I write something um, is to say, can I actually see someone actually doing this? Did I just make this up? because it sounds silly and funny, or is this actually a thing that someone would actually do and actually say in this situation? And so I really have to picture myself or picture someone I know, you know, at work or something like that, actually doing it. And if I could actually picture them doing it, then I think that it, it, it's something that I would want to, you know, keep writing about or include in my work. Um, and so that's, that's a lot of the things is, is, is really that. And, and sometimes there's a twist, you know, like, um, I wrote about the, you know, the real horrors of working uh, at a tech company, and all of it is really just the things that people complained about at Google. When there's really literally nothing to complain about at Google, you know, complaining about how the desserts don't change enough, or complaining about, um, you know, your monitors being too big so they block your view of the ocean, or something <laughs> like that. You know, like, you know, complaining that the lobster uh, is a little, you know, small today, or something like that. You know, like very uh, first world problems. Um, you know. <laughs> It's, it's, it's really bad when you, when you get, actually, I want to say, I wanted to say that, you know, you're at Google so long that you're complaining about those things. But I will say that people that just start out at Google, you know, complain about those things so quickly. I remember like within two months I was complaining that the sparkling water dispenser uh, dispensed water that wasn't as sparkly as I wanted it to be, (laughs) you know, like and I, I caught myself. I was like, whoa, did I just complain about the sparkling water dispenser? You know, it just didn't make any sense. And so it's, it's really just about observing myself and observing other people and, and, and trying to, you know, just write about exactly what people think and exactly what people say. And, um, you know, sometimes there's a twist on it, but a lot of times it's really verbatim what I've seen or what I what people have said
1: yeah, I think one of my favorite pieces that you did uh, was the one that compared living in New York to living in San Francisco.
5: Yeah, and that was based on completely on my experience. yeah.
1: Well, I'd never lived in New York, but I've lived in San Francisco, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is absolutely what it's like to live in San Francisco.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I had no idea too that like I, almost everybody in San Francisco has seen that piece. I had someone actually send it to me. Um, saying, hey, I know you just moved, so you should check this out. <laughs> Not realizing that I had written it. Um so that was funny. Um but yeah, I just want I, I just immediately noticed these differences when I moved in April and um, you know, that was that was great. I, I wanna do a part two. I have so many other things now that I've lived here longer. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, this has been phenomenal, as I expected it to be. So, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um.
5: Hmm. I I think I think it goes back to what I was saying about what I observed about great acting is is this element of surprise and. Um, and being unpredictable. Um, I think everybody is so unique and if they really said and really said what they were thinking, it would kind of shock you. And, and I think that, that, um, I think that, that piece uh, of, of art or being uh, creative uh, can be, if people are kind of shocking in a way that like is, it it gets, it it gets to you in a way that, that um, you know, uh is is familiar like Louis CK for example you know he says things that are you know shocking but they're unmistakably you know shocking in his own way um i think that that's i think that that is kind of what um makes things sort of unmistakable um and that's that's kind of what i enjoy i like being i like being surprised i like being i like not knowing what's going to happen and not knowing what's Uh, what's going to come out of someone's mouth, you know, uh, it's kind of like, that's one of the things that I love um, about my husband is I really like when you have a good conversation with someone, a great conversation is not someone just agreeing with you and saying, "Uh uh aha, aha, aha. And like repeating back to you what you just said, a great conversation is when you say something and someone takes what you said and makes it better and more interesting in a way that you never even thought of or gives you another perspective on something that, you know, that you never would have expected and I think that that's, that's what I really enjoy about, about art, about conversation, about anything. It's just that I, my mind gets taken to a place that's, that I you know, didn't expect it would be taken to.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that makes a, a really beautiful way to sum up our conversation. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners.
5: Oh, thank you so much. This has been a, an absolute pleasure.
1: Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.